Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we meet the team behind the stop-motion scenes of the new feature film adaptation of The Little Prince. Hello, one and all. This is Ben Mitchell and, of course, Steve Henderson. We're here to bring you all the latest and greatest from animation and uh, all that it has to offer. Uh, of course, we do these a lot more frequently now, so animation really needs to pick up the pace as far as coming up with stuff for us to talk about. Uh, but there have been some things, haven't there? There have been one or two things, Ben. There's not been much. Last episode was was feast, and this one's pretty much famine, but there's a few interesting stories here and there, Ben. So uh, the first thing that springs to mind is uh, My Life as a Courgette has been uh, selected for the Foreign Language Oscar, and not the animation one, which I would have... Uh, predicted yeah i wonder why that's the angle they're going with it it's very interesting uh, it could mean that well let's say let's imagine that there's a world where this year there's an animated film out which could be nominated for best picture and win best picture and let's imagine my life as a courgette wins best foreign language and then obviously we've got a guaranteed winner at the uh, for the animated feature film Let's imagine a world where three animated feature films, separate animated feature films, win an Academy Award. Wouldn't that be nice? That would uh, that would piss a lot of people off. <laughs> I wouldn't be one of them. Like a lot of people would be very confused, which I'd uh, I'd, I'd enjoy seeing. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, if you're going to enter the the foreign language uh, feature film, I suppose it, this would maybe make it a bit more accessible to an audience. The fact that it's having this this superb family animated feature. Uh, that's very accessible, uh, quite short, and something that a whole kind of family can enjoy on on every level. You might turn people onto the the foreign language, uh, you know, features and explore a few more of these kind of uh, films with subtitles on. There are two schools of thought, I suppose, as to how one could interpret this, and the less optimistic one would be that maybe there's a sort of impulse to distance it from animation as a category. But then I think probably the good intentions behind that, as another way of looking at it, would be like inevitably, of course, the animation Oscar categories are going to go to the majors, the big multiplex movies that have been doing the rounds, because that's just sort of always been the case. Mm-hmm. And occasionally they'll throw in a less mainstream feature, almost as a kind of like, yeah, we see you. But of course, the Oscar then goes to the Disney one or the Pixar one or whatever. Yeah. So maybe there's a sort of, you know, maybe the the impulse behind this is, yeah, let's give this film a real fighting chance because its value as a film, as amazing as the animation is, is far beyond the animation. You know, it's not just a film that you look at and say, oh, that's pretty. It's a it's a tremendous story. And I think that, you know, as as memory says, my only criticism of it was that we leave these characters too soon. Mm-hmm. that we don't get to spend more time with them. And I, it's been a very long time since I've seen a film that I, I went away from it feeling that, you know, live action or animation. Mm-hmm. That's like uh, the old trick is keep, leave them wanting more. So it, it's a strength in many cases. Well, I, uh, I wish that team all the best. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the strange, sometimes impenetrable world of the Oscars, always uh, ever mysterious. We shall see how this turns out for... Uh, Claude Barris and Co. No doubt it will end in disappointment as it does every single year that we do our Oscars roundup, Ben. <laughs> ah, st- you're, you're, you're learning. 
It's only taken me three years. It's, I'm finally beginning to rub off on you. <laughs> Expect nothing, and you're never disappointed. Good stuff. We've been treated to a little short Donald Trump attack from The Simpsons. Have you seen this, Ben? I've seen the news stories about it and uh, felt a little let down because any scathing attack on Donald Trump 100% serves his purpose and his cause. Mm. The whole thing is so cynically administered by you know, news corporations and TV shows and stuff. And maybe there's a, there's a sense that, you know, the people behind this at The Simpsons felt like, oh, yeah, this will sock it to him. But of course, it's a, it's one hundred percent playing into his hands. It's the equivalent of writing an incensed article about the latest offensive comment Katie Hopkins made. Mm. It was well, if you didn't acknowledge that, then that's where her power comes from. You dumb. Yeah. Donald Trump's campaign has been one hundred percent built on spectacle, mm. causing aggravation and anger, and making incredibly facile, stupid remarks that I'm sure he, on some level, knows. Like, I think, like, Bush was, in the sort of Boris Johnson sense, one of those people that would just blather idiotic things just because he was a bit of a, you know, mush mouth. Yeah. Donald Trump belabors his points to the extent that there's, you can tell there's a bit of thought behind them. It's like, okay, what's the thing I can say in this situation that will get people to be like, why I oughta? <laughs> yeah. And when you put together a, a barbed attack, on um, his stupidity and his ignorance and his bigotry. It's fueling the fires of his visibility. Yeah, you, you feed in the beast, really. The attention is an attention-craving nutcase. That's, that's probably the best way of, of putting it. And it is really odd to have these people in these positions because we, we've talked about the, the power of satire uh, once or twice on this podcast and, and looked towards uh, spitting image or 2D TV or, or things like that. That we've uh, that used to kind of put people to task back in the day, and of course that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you know, the newspaper satirists, the people hang them up in their offices. I went to the uh, Houses of Parliament a few years ago, and there's a bar in the Houses of Parliament which is full of newspaper uh, cartoons of takedowns of the people in government. So they take it as Almost as like a, they wear it like a, you know, badge of honor. It's really kind of, really odd that you know satire can take if they if they're taking it in humor or if they're taking it as just a way to inflate their ego, then it really isn't a weapon. I, I Should I watch this thing? By the way, it's only like a minute long. Give it a watch. See what you think. All right, let's patch her up. This is Trumptastic Voyage. Is that the one? Uh, yeah, I think so. All right. Can you hold a sign? You know it. Oh no, sorry, no, it's not Trumptastic Voyage. It's not that one. No, 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 no. There's, there's another brilliant Simpsons Trump takedown. Interestingly enough, though, that Trumptastic Voyage was uh, the one that people said the Simpsons predicted Trump years and years and years ago. Oh my god. Yeah. So, but, but I, yeah. How f***ing stupid are people? I mean, I, there was like a joke in like a, a an old Simpsons episode about Trump being president, like a mm. line. Yeah, yeah. But people, I, <laughs> I just, I despair sometimes. You lost for words. Basically, if anyone didn't see this, I'm sure everyone did. But like, people took 
like a, a, a scene from a new Simpsons that very directly referenced footage from Trump's campaign, yeah. like in the way that they would reference scenes from movies. Like, you know, they, they replicate the composition of the shot what, like exactly to the point where the piece of paper sort of like falls out of someone's hand mm-hmm. in the background. And people are saying, look, they predicted this would happen 50 years ago, yeah, yeah. saying this was the clip. So what, they, they predicted that someone would drop his piece of paper? <laughs> you f- morons. <laughs> Illuminati it's the ex- confirmed. He's going down the exact same escalator. Oh, Christ. <laughs> and I do, I do like the... The thing is, I guess, what, what happened is whether someone kind of purposefully put this out knowing that people would run with it or it was just like someone made the mistake of like they they heard about this line in the old Simpsons. It was like, you know, one of those Simpsons where they imagine what the Simpsons would be like in the future. They make a reference to President Trump, Trump being known back then more as just a kind of blowhard Mr. Burns-esque. He was on the Howard Stern show. Yeah, Uh, it was before even The Apprentice. So... Uh, he was just one of the a bit like uh, Branson and those kind of people. They would take pot shots at you know these these multi billionaire types. So yeah, so someone maybe like found that reference, googled it, found saw the first thing is like oh wow that actually really reminds me of something I saw on the news the other day. Hmm. And they put and they don't question that or that was this year's like Back to the Future too. Like this is the day that <laughs> Muddy and Doc. <laughs> Every f- month for like five years, someone would Photoshop that still. <laughs> and of course, Aye. being a massive Back to the Future 2 fan, I was like, it didn't land in 2012, <laughs> you f***ing morons. Aye, so yeah, now, now we're suitably riled up, Ben. Why don't you watch this 3am Simpsons clip? All right, let's whip it up. I'm probably just going to get annoyed because it's new Simpsons. <laughs> Well, that was some gentle satire. <laughs> well, good for them. They keep producing content <laughs> to, to what I assume is a sort of minimum required output per month via their social media channels. Good for them. It is coming out quite quick. When uh, Pokemon Go was released, they released a very, very quick satire within the week of, of the game being launched. And it reminded me, and these things do remind me now, of the Simpsons cartoon maker that I used to have when I was a kid. And you just <laughs> drag and drop walk cycles and catchphrases and put a background, set the scene, and there you go. You've got Homer at the zoo. <laughs> you know? um, and it just kind of reminds me of that. It's a little bit kind of, it's happening a little bit too fast for my liking. And I wonder how kind of, how the Simpsons is evolving as a show into like a kind of more... That, that you know they're putting a bit more improv into it, and it's not as crafted as it was. Uh, maybe because you know the way the world has had to have changed, and this is the next evolution of the Simpsons is that it will evolve into this very lickety split, gentle, as you say, gentle satire sketch show without any real punch. Maybe that'll be it because, again, like you know, who knows what TV is even going to evolve into mm. in the next 10, 20 years or so, but it may be go back to like it's really short form roots yeah because these are like isolated vignettes and stuff like that you know it's a little bit reminiscent of like the old tracy ullman in and out of commercial one two minute shorts yeah and maybe they'll probably i mean if they they can put together a good like production pipeline to knock out 
stuff really really quickly you know even if the show itself gets cancelled probably the you know you c- kill the body but the head doesn't die kind of thing um it'll probably carry on forever i think i mean it's like every like the flintstones is always with us mm. you know what i mean like it's still part of culture there's always going to be excuse like they'll throw f- commercials together i assume or they probably still do little specials and stuff like that every once in a while um you know from a show that was off the air decades ago you know there's no way after this many years that these characters aren't just going to be forever in the public consciousness but so you know i i have just no particular enthusiasm for it anymore Oh. Uh, so I, yeah, my my only the only thing I kind of got from that, like I sort of said at the beginning, was Donald Trump isn't going to look at that and be like, "Well, this puts it all in perspective," <laughs> and he drops out of the race. Yeah, he's going to look at that. It's going to be like when a, a singer found out that Weird Al took the piss out of them. They'd be like, "Finally, yeah, if, yeah. if The Simpsons has done me, then I'm really hot." Shit. He's got yeah. a tick list, doesn't he? And he, he, that he wanted to be on this show, he wanted to be on that show, he wanted certain people speaking about him, he wanted to be on the BBC, NBC and Fox at exactly the same time. He probably has his tick list in his office somewhere and he thought, how do I achieve this? Oh, I'll run for president. And, you know, that's maybe how he's... So he's got his his bucket list or and he's ticking them all off with this ridiculous campaign. So uh, uh, nothing new is happening, Ben. I think we've established that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing tremendously new. I've been. Um, it is amazing how much like stuff that I I just had no knowledge of finds its way to Netflix. This will bring us round to something positive shortly. Mm. But uh, things that will just kind of like crop up, and you'll be like, "Wow, I didn't think that was a thing that ever existed." And um, it's like worse than you could possibly imagine it. Did you know that before the recent Zoolander movie, which was by all accounts pretty dire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't really a fan of the first one, to be honest. But um, between Zoolander 1 and 2, they made a Zoolander animated feature. I had absolutely no idea. Okay, well, punch yourself in the skull, whichever part of your brain like re- <laughs> has like short-term memory, because you'll want to have not heard about that. Right, okay. <laughs> it's one of the, when you see something that's like, well, how bad could it be? Probably pretty bad, let's take a look. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. My God. It's aggravatingly bad like just for sort of 30 seconds uh did you know they've made a spin-off series of that uh home film yes yes i did know did about you, this. did you see any of that one uh i've seen some clips of it It looks flash animated really 2d flat kind of thing the the color palette makes my retinas itch right <laughs> that that movie sailed over me i i had absolutely kind of no intention to to watch that it did seem weirdly kind of like capitalizing on that i don't know the guy's name but the guy who played the alien who plays pretty much the same character in the in big bang yeah so they what i did sort of pick up is that they they got some poor schmo in to just do an impression of that guy and his one character oh it's not even the original cast i'm pretty sure it was a different guy Mm. it did definitely sort of seem like they wanted to do something in the kind of you know that mold of how a lot of shows look now very curvy and very round in terms of the design and also very very simplistic mm. that was an interesting approach i think they did something similar with that snail film just going by like the poster that shows up occasionally in the the netflix oh turbo yeah I th- I th- and the crudes as well it was another one they did a 2d version of yeah maybe it's just like a whole like dreamworks thing like their kind of modus operandi is to just like uh spin them all out into spin-off shows 
Mm-hmm. So the positives, of course, on Netflix is it's also become a kind of repository of films that can't find a home elsewhere mm. uh, once they've kind of done their initial uh, rounds. And I think that's indicative of an overall changing landscape of film distribution. I think that certainly the notion that uh, Netflix would be considered a um, less valuable alternative to worldwide theatrical distribution or whatever, uh, I think that's changed hugely in the last few years or so. And I think it's it's always nice when they kind of uh, just spring something on you. Like, surprise, mm. look what we got for you now. There's a whole new season of this show. Yeah. Or, you know, there's a... a stand-up comedian will put out like a new special on netflix and you won't have known about it until you get the email saying hey you like bill burr here you go that's my morning sword excellent you yeah, know? yeah so that that element of it i like a lot and a film that i think a lot of us were quite curious about and we weren't really sure about its future was mark osborne's adaptation of the little prince and that uh, came out on netflix this past friday after, I think, a bit of a, a not very smooth ride as far as distribution goes. I think uh, there was a fear, wasn't there, that a film such as this, you know, a tender and sensitive film, wouldn't uh, be able to compete against the, the might of, uh, you know, cinema blockbusters. So putting The Little Prince up up against all these ones, I, I, can, pro- I can probably see where the fear is because cinemas have evolved into these big kind of hot dog and popcorn selling machines. You know, the films are just basically a, a byproduct of it. I think that certainly efforts have been made with this film to to cater to the hot dog audience, mm. but not in a particularly shallow way. Like, there's, it's quite a thoughtful film. But certainly, aesthetically, it has that sort of consideration for... They've, they've made the wraparound story look you know like a contemporary mainstream animated feature mm-hmm. not 100 interchangeable with the likes of you know pixar and dreamworks etc but that's a good thing i think you know it has enough of its own identifiability about it and its own individuality and certainly and the story has a has its own pace which is separate to the very very formulaic approaches to story that pretty much every film has mm that makes it to a multiplex. It's, it's that very sort of, you know, identifiable setup. The character will have its journey. And at some point, they'll befriend someone or they'll befriend a small group of people. And then there'll be, you know, that little bit of conflict toward the end. And then everything wraps up nice and neat right at the end. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you'll have a studio that will, that will be bold enough to kind of mix it up a little bit. And one thing I will credit something like, you know, How to Train Your Dragon for obviously is you know like spoiler alert if you haven't seen it but like kid doesn't make it fully intact at the end of that film i quite like that yeah um and then in the uh, the second one again this is a much bigger spoiler alert if you never saw that one it's a couple years old now uh what i love when we saw uh, guillermo del toro at annecy was the relish and the glee in which he um explained his role in killing one of the characters in that yeah. film the kid's dad finally reunites with his long lost wife and it's so happy and then he immediately gets killed by a dragon by his own dragon and del toro's like you have to kill (laughs) people was like trying to talk him off the ledge like don't don't kill the dad let him have his his family no these kids are too soft we will kill the father (laughs) while his son watches in terror 
Because I like this guy. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's responsible for punching up most of DreamWorks films. All of these decisions that have been made over the years. It's been Guillermo del Toro in the background going, yeah, kill him. More must die. Yeah. Guillermo del Toro, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't involved in The Little Prince. Uh, so <laughs> there's a bit less of a body count. <laughs> yeah. But certainly The Little Prince also has its own less conventional approach to the story structure in a way that was a bit of a surprise when I first saw the trailer that there was actually a wraparound story at all. Mm. Certainly in the earlier marketing materials, it did seem like it was going to be a sort of straightforward stop motion adaptation of the film. What it actually is, isn't that doesn't make up the greater percentage of the film. It actually makes up about between 15 and 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. And so what you and it's a long film as well for an animated film. It's like an hour forty-five, something like that. So the, most of it is this completely different story that is kind of about the telling of the story. So the aviator, who was the uh, the narrator of the book, is now an old man, and uh, he befriends this little girl who lives next door, whose mother is kind of uh, borderline mentally ill, fastidious planner of her daughter's life. To the point where she's going to grow up and be really boring. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the creepy old man next door invites her into his garden to play. <laughs> and um, and they, they, they forge a very innocent friendship. And then therein lies the, the setup for the actual Little Prince story that people would recognize from the book. Mm-hmm. The book, of course, is one of the biggest children's classics of all time. Did you read it when you were younger, Ben? No, I actually read this book for the first time not that long ago. It was about six months before the film was announced. Mm. So it was quite fresh in my head, but I hadn't actually come across it before then. It was given to me by a friend of mine who um, was interesting. It was a very nice gift. Yeah. Because its message was very resonant as regards her and my relationship. And um, I couldn't really sort of go into more detail without getting like personal, but it was, I I read this thing and like, even as an adult, I'm like, I could see why this is a a huge hit because this, puts across very, very sophisticated adult concepts Mm -hmm. in a way that I think kids would really be able to grasp. This was a book that, even though it was a book for children, you could read as an adult and absolutely get what it was trying to say. Mm -hmm. I read it when I was was a kid. We we went on holiday with my my mum and my auntie Francis. And so they could go into the bar on an evening and keep me busy. They gave me the book and I was very young. So they'd go out and get faced (laughs) 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 we sat there reading the book in the hotel room at the end my my auntie francis went i'll I'll give you a quiz and see what happens in the end and (laughs) and uh she she asked me at the end of the holiday hung over head on hand on head you know what what happened in the book then and i I told her i'd like word for word (laughs) read the book back to her and she was like yeah that's enough that's enough that's enough i've got an headache (laughs) but uh, that was the last time I read the book when I was very young. And then when I saw the animation for this, this particular film, the bit with the, the hat and the snake and the, the elephant, it really took me back to this wonderful kind of children's book, which I found it quite perplexing because I was very young when I read it. Uh, so I didn't quite get it. I just thought it was a little bit, a little bit odd, a little bit quirky, but still you know, enjoyable and fascinating. And you know, it, it led to me you know, questioning the world that the little prince inhabits. Or the worlds that the little prince inhabits. Um, so it was it was an odd experience for me, but the animation has been you know true to that. I think there's still the sort of like the childlike uh, wonder uh, which is throughout it. 
the only sort of as far as the because it becomes quite clear that around like the halfway point of the film you're more or less done with the adaptation of the original book mm. and then you're left with like a good 45 minutes of wrapping up the story that i had i had gone into it thinking oh this will just be like a framing device like something like the never ending story and uh it then turns out that actually no the the you know, the little girl and her her conflict with her mother and um, her relationship with the old man and her perception of the book is actually what the the whole last act of the film is about. And so then what you're sort of presented with, and uh, I'll, I won't go into too much detail for people who want to watch the film, is this kind of updated, like, follow-on, I guess. Like, you know, what happened when the little prince grew up and he turned into a Paul Rudd-voiced janitor. But then the stuff that they did with the other characters from the story and where they ended up and how it all kind of interwove, my I was watching it a little worried, I think. I think, like, watching it again, I wouldn't have the same reservations. because My concern was that they were going to go for, like, this, this different kind of ending that would sort of negate the whole point of the book, where instead they actually stayed true to that fundamental life lesson, I suppose, or... You know, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't too like drippy. The only issue, I suppose, was that it felt like the book and the way it was written, and the and the text of the book is quite faithfully translated and effectively visually translated. That it felt like you would watch those sequences and you would have gotten it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the whole last act of the film is basically explaining what the end of the book means. Mm to this little girl and by extension to the kids who are watching the film. And I wondered if that was that necessary. And so what I kind of came away from this film, and I'm not saying anything against the job Mark Osborne did with the film. I think like it's one of the, the much better CG films I've seen of late, but just like sort of thinking of how much I adored the stop motion sequences. Like what if this had been conceived like maybe differently, like as like a half hour TV special. Yeah. Like the kind of things that we see, like Stickman or uh, Shaun the Sheep, so the half-hour animated films that have just become absolutely like iconic and known as like you know these Christmas classics, even if they aren't necessarily about Christmas. I think it went uh, flat. Well, that was a Christmas special, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. Like that, and that's sort of I think everyone kind of remembers that that had like an impact on them in the same way that you know the wrong trousers will always be probably associated with christmas and that's nothing to do with anything this is me thinking aloud but did did you see uh the close shave was on uh yesterday during the day you can't put that on in in august oh no but it took me back to christmas it was amazing (laughs) i I turned it on and it was the bit where the uh the plane starts firing the porridge and it was still (laughs) i was watching it was like i'm I'm nine again (laughs) brilliant yeah so yeah I, I that was that was my only wistful sort of yeah what if that what if this had been like just the stop motion i could see maybe it would have been a much harder sell as a feature and probably it wouldn't have extended to an hour and a half mm. like i think half an hour would have been like the most you could have probably given that and and kept it you know vibrant and interesting and engaging and so what we get i mean you you get this thing and you, you you're left wanting more i mean that's always a good thing but what everyone that I've spoken to, I guess just because, you know, a lot of the people that I know kind of have very similar sensibilities, came away from this film where there's just how striking and how uh, wonderful the stop motion sequences are. And the uh, the roster of the stop motion crew, I mean, it's really top animation talent. So you have Anthony Scott, uh, whose career goes back to The Nightmare Before Christmas. 
and he's worked with Henry Selick since then, like on uh, Caroline and Monkey Bone and James and the Giant Peach. Like his filmography is like really top tier, like stop motion. And you go through this, and you know, they're showing uh, there's a Roald Dahl season on at the watershed at the moment because of the BFG. Mm-hmm which uh, we went to see the Henry Selleck, James and the Giant Peach, uh, as part of this Blake season. And mm. I was a little disappointed because it seemed like they were running it off a DVD. Oh, man. And kind, kind of the point was to see, like, a good print of it. Mm. But on a big screen, it was still good to watch as well. And in a weird way, like, James and the Giant Peach, we were sort of, you, you'll hear in the interview that's coming up, a point I kind of half-heartedly make about certain visual similarities. I think the point was something I'd picked up on in the design of the spider, in James and the Giant Peach, yeah, sort of established uh, the face. If you remember the way the spider looks in that film, the stop motion film, the design of that face is something that's become a very popular look in a lot of like stop motion since there's yeah. there's kind of archway eyebrows and the way the kind of like the eye sockets lead into the nose, that kind of look. That's become. I mean, I'd seen variations on it before, um, but it seemed like that very angular approach to it kind of took hold. And then when you kind of look at like the kind of beady eyes of James and stuff, there were just these little elements that have kind of like shown up in stop motion films since then. And to a small extent, it shows up, I think, in the little prints. I think to quite a large extent, I think you were pointing it out there. If you look at the little prints and as you say, the design aesthetic does match. But they have a, uh, some quite good theories about um, uh, about that sort of side of things and the, the way that stop motion and you know its design has a kind of ripple effect and evolves over time so uh so who we're talking to in this episode because i was so enamored of the stop motion sequences i wanted to get a hold of anthony scott who then suggested why don't we talk to everyone and so he rallied together um the stop motion team so this is probably a squiggly first we were able to get like a a skype five way wow within like 24 hours so i'm pretty chuffed because i'm working on something else that's um you know, I'm getting trying to get a hold of a few people individually, and that's proving a, a, a big task. So to get like a whole bunch of people to you know talk to us for a couple of hours on a Sunday, um, much appreciated, and uh, especially with the film so fresh in our minds. So yeah, we're talking to Anthony Scott, who is the um, the head of animation, Corin Merrill, who is the art director, Jamie Kaliri, and Alexander Yuhas, and they've worked together as a bit of a, a team on quite a few high-profile things, like the opening sequence for United States of Tara, the Rifle Spiral music video for The Shins. Between them, they've worked on an awful lot of really cool stuff as well, like Alexander did uh, the book in The Babadook, and uh, Jamie did the uh, titles in Lemony Snicket, the end credits, which were um, what a lot of people said were the best thing about the film, I remember, at the time. Certainly that was something, because was, that was when I was doing my motion graphics BA, and... Um, that was like an example of a sequence that was really like, wow, look at what you can do mm-hmm. with um, color animation. Like you can create some really amazing sort of visual things. And that's definitely something that comes through in the little prints because it's not just puppet stop motion. You get these paper animated sequences as well yeah. that are just lovely. So yeah, all people that uh, are definitely worth checking out uh, individually because they've got you know really, really astounding filmography between them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's, uh, let's have a little chat with the stop motion team from the little prints. My name is Anthony Scott. I was the stop motion lead animator on The Little Prince, and I worked closely with Jamie, Alex, and Corinne on developing how the characters moved and testing puppets and props early on, and then into uh, shooting the hero shots. 
this is Jamie Cleary. My role was the creative director of the stop motion, and my sort of day-to-day role was as the director of photography. So I helped sort of pull the team together and then uh, sort of supervise the final look of the shots and uh, work closely with Alex and Corinne on uh, kind of getting, you know, puppet and, and sets kind of working together and just... I was sort of like the last line to okay, like, you know, whether we, you know, started shooting or not. So that was, that was sort of my role. Hi, I'm Alexander Juhas. I was the production designer on the stop motion project. Also, uh, Moonlighting as the, the character designer. So that entailed overseeing, like, designing all the, the characters and interpreting the, the standing super characters and then supervising the build and construction of the puppets kind of from start to finish, to include the sculpting and all that, and making paintings in between to sort of, if they needed it, help Jamie and Corinne have some reference on the sets they were building. I'm Corinne Merrill, and I worked as the art director on the stop-motion sequences of the film, and I created the sets and the props along with the art department team for all of the sets and the locations out of paper and and uh yeah that's that's it excellent so um obviously this is a classic text the uh, source material uh, goes back a very very long way and uh, i was sort of curious had uh, you guys all read this book prior to your involvement in the film yeah this book was something my um I think my, my family, you know, I just sort of discovered it in our home library when I was a kid. And the drawings, they sort of intrigued me and scared me. I didn't really understand what the story was. But it's something I was aware of ever since I was a little, little boy. The, uh, so Mark's um, involvement in the overall kind of stop motion process, was it a very sort of active involvement in the sense that, um, uh, you know, he oversaw it all? Or was it kind of handed over um, and he sort of just sort of supervised? Or was he like, was he just as active as a director on those segments as the rest of the film? Well, you know, I would say you know, he was very much involved because he he had pre-boarded it out pretty well and he directed all the actors' performances, the voice performances. So he already was handing us a pretty good map uh, of what needed to be done. But because he did that, and I think because he trusted all of us, he didn't have to really babysit us too much. I mean, he, he's a good director and he was there approving every shot, but he was much more attentive to the CG, I would say. I don't know if anyone else wants to pipe in on that. I kind of second what Jamie said on that, is that Mark on several occasions said, like, look, I know you guys won't bring anything to my attention that hasn't already gone through your approval process. So he gave us a lot of, I think, leeway to sort of find the look uh, from a design perspective, but also let Jamie find photographically and, and just visually how to interpret what, what he gave us the board, you know, or I mean to shoot. And then Mark is very tuned into performance. So I think that where maybe he gave a little more freeway to art department and cinematography, I think he was, you know, he really paid a lot of very close attention to performance. And I think collaborated a lot with Alex talking about like, um, about the way the puppets would work and whatnot. And with Anthony, I don't know, maybe you guys want to talk about how you guys work with Mark. Sure. Uh, just one example was, you know, early on I had questions about wind and the scarf and the fabric and 
basically the wind was like another character. So we actually had to talk about like how strong the wind was in each shot. And so we would talk to Mark about that. I mean, that's just one example of one of the things we would, but it was something we had to address. I think most of my conversations in terms of performance with Mark was we'd go over the voice acting and like, but just talk about like what emotionally like the character needed to be doing in the moment. So I guess that, that all kind of subconsciously filtered into the, or very directly filtered into the, how uh, the character, the expressions, the phonetic kits were all designed for, like specifically for, for each boarded performance, which Mark knew exactly kind of what he needed because he was looking, we, we had our, you know, we had our 16 minutes in the film, but Mark was looking at it, he big picture in terms of like how, how everything would flow for the entire film. We were lucky because we, we were finishing shots before the CG was finishing shots just because of the way their pipeline worked. So I think we were really kind of lucky to set some sort of... Yeah, we got kudos for just, you know, just getting the movie done. Which was, of course... <laughs> well, also trying to set the bar, you know. Assuming you've all, you know, obviously seen the film, how do you feel about how it all sort of comes together, like that mix of CG and stop motion? Do you feel like it's a successful kind of pairing? Do you feel like it weaves together quite well? I think that it's great that something like that could happen in a in a movie like this to see both styles of animation and I I feel like Mark at the beginning I think he was always aware of what a gift it was to be able to work with both and uh, was really excited to do to work in stop motion and he was always very in tune with how we would transition from the CG to the stop motion and back and so I feel like from the beginning, we were really thinking about how that would work, how we would go in and out of those two worlds. And I think that there's a lot of interesting things that are happening there, especially with lighting and how lighting comes through the paper or how we pan in and out of, of those two styles. So I find that the most interesting part of the pairing of those two styles is the transition between both of them. And that it's an interesting way to tell that story visually, that the two different stories existing together. I didn't you yeah. know, find it jarring or I found, you know, that it was pretty smooth transition. And, you know, I think that the they were complementary styles uh, to each other in these particular ways that they were both rendered. So, so I think it was a success in terms of combining the two styles without it sort of pulling you out of the moment. I feel like even though we were, we were working at different studios, we were still working very closely together back and forth. Like, for example, we got a, a color script from Celine Desrumeaux, who is the production designer of the CG. So we worked closely with her on the color. And also they took a lot of references in lighting that Jamie did in order to bring the feel of, of the lighting into the CG, which I think in many ways they, they were very successful in doing that to help them live together in the same film. You know, since you have us all here at the same time, you know, one thing that I will... You know, my my best memories of this project are when, I, you know, because I think all, well, Anthony's worked on a lot of giant projects, uh, but at the time, Alex and myself and Corinne were used to smaller groups. And I, I there's times when it would just be, 
uh, Corinne and a couple um, of her art team and Alex and I, you know, and we would all just be trying to figure out the looks of the shots. And that to me was really fun. It wasn't, you know, it was hard to do on as many stages as we had, but I really liked that we kind of took a small team approach as far, we kind of pushed it, stretched it as far as we could. And I, I enjoyed that process. I'll say something about just the paper. You know, that was basically, that was the bridge between the two I felt watching the film because there was CG paper and then we were working in paper. So, you know, every time we cut back and forth, you'd see the character holding a page from the manuscript or we would push in like in plain shot and then we'd be shooting with the real paper. So we were, it was fun to experiment with uh, with that especially like all the different kinds of paper we were using and but I felt like that was the real bridge that helped with those transitions. I think that it would be really good for Corinne to just quickly talk about she had to kind of set up a paper uh, staining factory in order to get everything built and I think it's kind of critical to the success of of what we did. Okay we found a paper mill in town in Montreal that we could get our paper supply from and it was like a raw material a white paper made out of linen was what we used for many of the sets we used a lot of other papers but this one was um, was a a major one that that we used often and so in order to get it to the right tone that we uh, wanted it in the, the colors we would put it in a bath of tea and pigment and different kinds of all-natural colorings to get the tone of what we wanted for each shot. And so always we would have this, this job that needed to be done to stain the papers and then hang them to dry. Some we would put uh, soak and hang. Some we would spray to get more texture and all with different tones, different amounts of a darkness to them and different shades. The largest stock was for the desert, uh, sand colored, and there were about six different variations, uh, but all were hand done. They were all hand hand sprayed, hand stained, so that each one had a uh, a bit of a different feel to them, handmade feel to them. And so we would pick the portions of the paper that we liked for different parts of the sets for set dressing. And we would always have this paper on hand so that we could quickly make something else, another sand dune if we needed one, and uh, in the color shade that we wanted it. And then we also did the same thing for all the green tones, anything that was uh, grass or trees. We would have a whole bunch of different textures that were stained and painted onto the papers in green. And also in the, the colors of the fields, the more ochres, uh, the yellows that were the wheat field. And so all the paper that you see used in the film was hand stained beforehand that would then we would cut and place onto the dress, onto the set. So it was, there was constantly a clothesline filled with, with uh, paper that was drying. And, 
and getting ready to to restock for the dressing. It's quite a commitment. <laughs> I, I, it's the kind of thing that, that definitely it's, you know, when you go that sort of extra mile and I can sort of like see now how that would sort of make the difference in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a, a little credit to Corinne is that um, while I designed the characters, there's one character I didn't make and that was the rose. Corinne ended up making the rose for, for all those sequences that the, the little prince interacts with. She did a wonderful job. Like we were swamped. We must've gone through a million versions of it. And then she ended Thanks. it. She just like, she just took it. She took the bull by the horns and made a really beautiful yeah, uh, version that we ended up using. We searched for the rose for, for quite a long time. And finally we, we got it. Certainly the version in the film, as it appears, uh, worked very well. I felt. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, yeah, as, as regards like the original illustrations from the book, did those more heavily kind of inform what you were doing or was there a sense more of free reign as far as... Because they're identifiably the characters, but there's also a nice sort of uniqueness to them. Right. My approach to these, like I, I used the, the book as my Bible, like the original illustrations as, as my guide. I wasn't looking at the, the CG designs at all. I was just thinking like, well, this is... You know, in the film, the way Mark had its storyboard, he said, like, this is the little girl's interpretation of the book, of her, you know, she's seeing the illustrations, so um, we're seeing, like, her imagination or reimagination of the illustrations into into the characters. So when I was designing them, I was, I was thinking about that, like, always going back to the original Sitting Zupri drawings. Now, his, his drawings are so naive and really beautiful, and, and what gives them a real sense of power and, and authenticity is the fact that they're like he's you, he's struggling to make them you know he's he says it in the book he's not he's not a great he's not a great artist or illustrator he can't really draw so when i was using uh his illustrations as as reference to to redesign the characters like i had to put it through my brain so that it made sense through my you know artistic eye but there's a lot of emotional information you know about the characters and you know how he wrote about them what needed to happen in the film as well that was informing my approach to the visual approach to it you know it's like trying to find that feeling that you have if you close your eyes and it's like a memory of the character if it's like what that feels like it's like that's what i was trying to manifest in the character designs mm. if that makes sense yeah. uh so you and uh jamie work together quite often what is it about your work that gels so well do you think i would just say that uh alex is really versatile and i like his natural style is is uh it's got an elegance to it that's not really out of the animation tradition, but with it more out of a fine art and illustration tradition. So his work has got kind of an edge to it, and it's always fun for me, as more of a camera guy, to um, to photograph his paintings and his sculpts. Uh, I just really enjoy it. And he, Alex has got a great um, way to kind of uh, interpret characters and brings a lot of warmth to the character drawings that he does and the designs and so it just it makes telling any kind of story that much easier and like i said before it's always fun to light what he's made thanks jamie i think uh following that jamie and i we've it's been almost 10 years since we've been working together and on all of his projects jamie brings this like a real high standard of excellence to everything and i think um his technical mastery of photography but also jimmy has a really great sense of like storytelling 
So you can see that, like, in, in all of the stop motion, it's like his fingerprints are over every frame because it's like he's really detail-oriented, but also big picture-oriented. So my sculpts or, like, whatever is made, it's like it can be good, but with a great photographer like Jamie, it's like he really shoots, like, trying to make something excellent, like, make it really beautiful. And he's good at detecting, like, what the essence of what makes something really beautiful and like emotionally resonant as well. And I, I think that's what I've always, I, I love working with Jamie for that reason, because he's like, he, he, he's able to capture something that's much more profound than just um, a puppet being photographed on a paper set. On that, who ended up making the puppets, both the paper and the three-dimensional stop-motion ones? It's, it sounds weird to take credit, but I mean, I was really lucky as, uh, as the character designer to be able to sketch them, sculpt them, and then you know we had a we had a little a, a small puppet team, but uh, we we you know we made them all there. So it's like you know the faces, um, the hands, everything. It's I, I got to work every day building these things with my team. So I made maquettes, and then the team made costumes. And often in you know stop motion big productions features, you have like an illustrator and designers and sculptors. And then they're kind of handing things over to like a head of puppet, you know, department. But Alex was the head of the puppet department. So he was really watching every detail as it went through. And part of that was because the team was just small enough for him to be able to do that. I think if the movie was any bigger, it might have been a little too much to juggle. But it just worked out nicely because he kind of would catch everything. And then obviously he was working closely with Anthony on, you know, what the puppets could do, armatures and all that. And Anthony... You know, he was in there working. Maybe Anthony and Alex, you guys could talk about how you work together in, in making the puppets. Sure, yeah. One thing I wanted to try in this film was, um, because we were doing replacement heads and brows and, and mouth shapes, which we've done before. I mean, I've done, I worked on other projects that have done similar things, but we, we tried something different. We wanted everything to look really painted. So we... It made sense to try that with the hands as well. We didn't want the hands to look like they were made out of rubber or anything like that. So we actually made replacement hands that the characters had. And the Little Prince had the tiniest hands ever. It would be really hard to make them uh, posable anyway. So they made these beautiful, beautifully sculpted hands. And uh, something I've always wanted to try on a film. And uh, this was the perfect film to do it in. Each gesture was, was kind of specifically tailored like we went through the storyboards and with the you know with the animators we're like okay what are you trying to do what do you need for the performance on this and, and we we got to we were really lucky we were able to sculpt specific gestures hand gestures you know face expressions and stuff for the animators to, to help them and in terms of the armature and everything it's like the wealth of information that was shared with us in, in terms of building the puppets and making sure that they can get what they needed out of them was huge. Like I can't, I can't downplay the, the influence of, of the animators, uh, Anthony, and, and just uh, on the the functionality and the practical application of the of the puppets and stuff. What was the like the overall scale of the stop motion crew production? I think there were fifty people at one point, but it was small. I mean, it just started with us four in a abandoned shoe store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for like the first month and a half or something. Yeah, I think I think fifty was probably the total of of everyone that worked on it at some point. It was small. Probably about twenty five 
there at a time. Yeah, oh, and okay. it would and it would ebb and flow. Yeah, it would. You know, when we'd ramp up, we'd have a bunch more people, and then it'd slow down. Yeah, depending on how many stages we're running. Right. We had about, I think, up to 14 stages and five or six animators, uh, including assistant animators. So it, it was a small, it was a nice, cozy production. So it'd be great to, uh, to chat a little bit about uh, what you guys did prior to this as well uh, and get a little sense of like your backstory and your background and that kind of thing. So maybe we could start with Kareen. Sure. I don't have a huge uh, background in stop motion. My background is more in, uh, well, beginning in architecture and then into uh, theater design, set design for theater and for film. And when I was in architecture school and theater school, we would make lots of models and theater designers are always making maquettes for productions. So I was asked once uh, by a director friend to build some sets in this way for stop motion and so that's how I got into it more from a, a model making background I worked on a lot of, of in a lot of different model shops uh, some Broadway uh, theater like musical model shops so learned a lot about making stuff in this way. And then I really liked how I could use this kind of skill and knowledge to tell a story and uh, to create environments for a story. And stop motion uses them in such an, an interesting way. And so that's how I got into this project. So what were the sort of major um, challenges, I guess, of this role on the project, would you say? Uh I think, let's see, there, there were a bunch of them. <laughs> I think that probably one of the, the most difficult ones was how to make these uh, locations for this story that are so many of them that are exteriors, to create them in a studio space that is not a huge, expansive um, space, but a small stage to make them look like they're in this landscape that is, is spreading out before them, a desert. Most of the locations are in a huge desert. So how to get that look, something that we could actually achieve with a small crew Alex helped a lot with that to create paintings that had that kind of feel and mood and texture and and we were able to work with those paintings and then we created these sets that were a little bit designed in in a little bit of a theatrical way where there were uh, layers of foreground and middle ground and background that we could create this kind of unfolding of a of a landscape but it was difficult because we were shooting in 3D, so we couldn't use the same kinds of perspective uh, tricks that, that we can do in, in theater or in a more conventionally 2D filmed, uh, not in 3D animation, uh, which helps a lot, those kind of perspectives. But uh, we couldn't do that here because we would see that. So uh, we had to to always think about how to create the scene without 
those kind of perspective tricks. And we built one or two very large desert sets that were X'd, right? <laughs> and then and then figured out how to do it in a much smaller way. So there was there was one that we built that was quite large, about thirty feet across, and all out of paper too. It was it was quite a piece. And then we said, okay, okay, this is too big, and we can't do this for everything. We're going to have to lease out more studio space if it goes this way. So we made a set of the, it was the, the, the snake in the desert that was about two feet across. And we photographed it with a model of a puppet, a snake puppet on it, and it worked. It worked out. And so we knew that it could be much, much smaller. And so we started figuring that out from that point of view, from a perspective that was more like creating a, an illustration of layers of the landscape. And another way to put it is like less topographical and more graphic. You know, just what, what does the yes. camera need to see to make it believe that this is a desert? Yes, that, that is... We really worked a lot with the camera, and that was great to have uh, Jamie there to to teach. The whole art department team became very confident in using Dragon Frame as a building tool, and we built to camera quite a lot of the sets. So we were able to rough in uh, what we wanted to see. We composed to the frame with the camera, and then we would dress it. Uh, to camera. So that was quite a luxury, I think, to be able to do that. But it was a great way to work. And the whole art department uh, became, some of them were even able to run through camera moves to check their work and build the set in that way. In that way, we weren't building anything that we didn't need, but we knew exactly what we were going to get. Some of the fun for Korean would be that I would walk in on the set and then I would like move a dune on a c-stand and then i'd leave and then alex would come in two hours later and he'd move a couple dunes <laughs> back <laughs> what is going on in here <laughs> it was uh, a comedy then i'd come back and go what the hell is going on here what do i have to do who's in charge <laughs> yeah i i lost my mind on what? a few occasions <laughs> <laughs> We called it, we, we would call it the dune game. <laughs> the dunes would just start moving. And once you get into that game, it doesn't end. It's just never ending. Oh, like, a little bit, a little bit here. Okay, a little bit more there. Turn a little bit here. Yeah. We had to in the end, and it became a, it, it be, it's, it's funny, but it became a really important thing that we all were in the studio together. Yeah. So that we... <laughs> There's got to be a time lapse of that somewhere. That'd be hilarious. Yeah, we would sneak in, sneak in, and just yeah, there would be a lot of sneaking in and shifting things just slightly because we would put everything on C stands. We kept asking production to buy us more C stands because the set pieces were all very movable, and uh, yeah, it was it it was quite a quite a game. Quite a game show. <laughs> I think the worst was it was I got a point of frustration I once that where I just couldn't figure out the lighting. I was I just couldn't figure out what to do with the lighting and I decided to blame the trees. I just started like pulling trees out of a set and then, you know, of course What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs>
You mentioned um, Dragon Frame, and if I understand right, James, you have a. a were you involved in Dragon Frame, as, like from a development perspective, or there, there's some connection there, right? Yeah, I designed. I designed the software. Oh. Yeah. So it's. Um, I assume then it's your, your first sort of port of call for <laughs> these types of jobs. That's correct. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> So when did that sort of, going into sort of your kind of backstory, what point did you get into that side of production? Well, you know, I mean, Anthony can attest to this being in Stamos a long time. You know, we used to shoot on film and there was always that thing of like, well, when did we get on film? And you'd have to, you know, wait for the film to come back and hope that it was right. And and even as technology was growing, you'd have to come up with, you try to come up with something. So there was a while where people would shoot on videotape and record one frame at a time, and then you'd watch it at the end alongside with your film. Then there were um, like frame grabbers that they used on um, like Nightmare that Anthony could tell you about, where it was like you could just grab a couple frames and play back like two frames and then live. And that was a big step forward. And somewhere in there, I was in school, and I, you know, in a long, this is, you know, early 90s, I, very early on, you know, you, you, you try to find solutions. So I had some basic software that ran my movie cameras. And then eventually my brother helped me do a thing that uh, did frame grabbing. So it's kind of a lot of people have had to in stop motion have had to have some way to solve this problem. There's been different tools for it. And I've always kind of had my toolbox along the way. And it just got to a certain point where I was on a job and an animator said, hey, you ought to package this up and sell it. So it's just one of those things that I've always sort of had some solution I've carried along with me, and then it eventually became a, a business. Yeah, I will add that uh, Dragon is just a pleasure to work with. I've been in the business almost 30 years, and when I first started, there was nothing like that. We didn't have any frame grabbers, so you were just shooting your puppet, the camera, and you used a surface gauge and very carefully moved everything and had to take careful notes and you um, had no idea really what it was going to look like until you got it back from the film lab. And yeah, in Nightmare Before Christmas, we had frame grabbers that would capture the last two frames and then keep overwriting it. And then you had lives. You kind of like were turning a dial and flicking a switch, (laughs) trying to get a flow going. And that was a huge breakthrough for us at the time, but you still couldn't play back your shots. So if you're on a shot that lasts two weeks, you really can't see it until you see it in front of everybody. So now you can actually play back your shot. The director can walk in, look at your shot halfway through the shot, and if they need to make corrections or changes, we can cut back a few frames or several frames and, and reshoot that portion and then keep going. It's it's made a stop motion. It's really revolutionary stop motion, I'd say. Definitely. Well, I guess um, paper animation, it's sort of a recurring element it'd be good to sort of hear from your perspective what it is about that that sort of continues to have a certain appeal or where you sort of gravitated toward that in school i did stuff with that was with paper and with photo cutouts and i was i was always using paper as a material just a lot of artists we use it anyway um you know whether or not it's made to look like paper but um i grew up in a household where my mother did a lot of fiber arts and i was it's just a I, I, I kind of have no fear around paper. I feel like it's very malleable and you can make cool stuff with it. But how I ended up coming down this road, I did an end title sequence for the movie Lemony Snickets. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, kind of faux paper. It was done with After Effects. And it just was one of those things that it was um, it caught people's attention and it caught the uh, uh, people's attention at United Airlines. 
And they said, hey, would you like to bid a spot for us in the style of the Lemony Snicket? But I um, thought it would be a lot more interesting and beautiful if we could shoot it with real paper. And so it's kind of one of those things where people ask you to do what you did before, you know? So mm. so we did it. And then, you know, that's when I first worked with Alex. And that piece uh, created a lot of um, buzz. And, and then people ask you to do it again. So I didn't set out on a life course to do paper animation, but it's fun. I like that it's quick to make changes with. I like the, how it's malleable. You know, one thing about our production is we decided right off the, at the beginning we weren't going to do any 3D printing because we wanted to keep the pipeline very analog and organic. And I'm sure Alex could tell you, you know, there was times, I think, on uh, in some of the performances where he would go in and make a new head just by taking an old head and re-sculpting it, repainting it right on the spot. I think that comes down to, like, it was a decision, much to the chagrin of my puppet department, was that the materials I okayed to use for the creation of, of, of the puppets all kind of had to have the paper texture, but also had to take paint a certain way. So we ended up using this this type of clay that really didn't do well reproducing uh, in, in molds. So we ended up having to like re-sculpt everything under camera. You know, Jimmy helped set up a really cool like mirror system with, with a set camera where we would register all the heads and then hand sculpt them each of the the increments each of the the replacements and uh what was great about this process it was super time consuming and it took a lot of labor to sort of get right but everything was wonky and that that was kind of that kind of fit with the with the the style of the film but it was also great because you know when anthony would be on set and he'd be like hey you know this hand it's not working, you know, I, I, or this face is where I, I would just break it and sort of re or, you know, make a new one completely. Um, you know, again, it's like tailoring, tailoring the different aspects, the, the, the different elements, um, for the performance. Uh, cause in the end it's like, it's really what the animator needs. You, know, you can make a really great thing, but if it doesn't work for the shot, you know, you gotta. So we, you know, we kept that idea of the quick paper malleability and being able to make changes all the way to the puppet heads and whatnot. So I think that's the thing I like about the paper is just, is that it's, uh, you know, you can get in there and mess with it, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. I, I mean, in that paper sequence, like all, all those puppets were just one-offs. I think these illustrations I made and then, then I'd sort of just drop them off on the set to you guys. Hmm. I guess one of the things I appreciate uh, about using paper is it, it actually, I like the way it photographs and, and the way, I mean, you can tell it's real. And I feel like a lot of the stop motion that's being made, sometimes you can't tell if it's computer animated or stop motion or some kind of hybrid. And I guess I, I really love the fact that you can tell, oh, yeah, this is real paper. This is stop motion done with paper. And we had to be careful. I mean, I, I know there's a couple occasions where I got on a set and I just threw light on on everything. And my first thought was, oh, it looks like a character standing on top of a pinata. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so you, you're playing a game with the paper. You know, you're you're. you're playing this dance where you're trying to, yeah, no, no, I'm going to make it seem like we're out in a field or wherever. Uh, and that, you know, you try to get the final tweak with the lighting and that to really, you know, set, set the tone and to kind of hide a little bit of the, uh, of, of the paperness, but that, that play of what you see and what you don't see and what feels expansive and what you sort of know on an underlying level is a little tiny set that that's where the magic, I think kind of happens mm. is that push and pull. 
Yeah. And the animators also were super open to using paper that was not, um, you know, so that we could keep, yeah, was not reinforced so that we could keep some of the translucency of the light flowing through the paper, which is what makes paper feel like paper. Anytime that it's uh, made to be opaque to reinforce it, really you lose that, that sense of the ethereal quality of the paper that we wanted to retain. So the animators were great in helping us figure out just the right amount of reinforcement that they would need to do their work. And we figured that out together through testing and just sometimes taking off on a shot with your fingers crossed that it was going to be okay. And it, it worked out. Yeah, I do remember shooting many different scarf tests early on and just we just had to keep going thinner and thinner, but if, you know, in the beginning they were very, um, it was hard to get uh, too many shapes out of it because it was too thin, so or too thick, and so wanted to try, I don't know, eventually we used, you guys used um, like a paper twine, unwrapped yeah. it, put very thin wire in, and it was perfect. You could get some really nice shapes out of it, you could see through it, sort of. Um, but it looked great, lit up, and very animatable. Now, Anthony, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I got the feeling that we were overall much more daring with the sort of the unconventionally uncontrollable paper in the shots than maybe on other productions where they'd want to, you know, put like, a, you know, lead paper behind something or, or more wires. Is that the case or is that not true? No, that that's true. I you know, I've seen it both ways. I um, because I've worked with fabric too in the past, and so it's a similar thing where you don't want to control it too much. If you put too much, if you put like a sheet of you know aluminum foil or I've used lead, like like on Nightmare Before Christmas uh, Zero, the Ghost Dog had like a lead sheet, and then there was tape and paint. So, but you could get some good shapes out of it. It was very thick though, and we wanted to sort of see through stuff and let the the paper uh, fold naturally and crinkle, and and uh, on Corpse Bride we had this dress that uh, Tim Burton wanted to see through, and you know, so that sounds great, but to animate something like that is difficult. So it was always like, uh, what's the the minimum, uh, you know, control wire, uh, you know, weights, whatever we could figure out to um, let the fabric do what it would do naturally and still be able to control it. So yeah, in Little Prince, it was, for me anyway, it was like, yeah, just we just need a tiny loop of wire here, just a very thin wire here, and then a thinner wire here, you know, just keep it as as uh, simple as possible. Yeah. I mean, all the hair, all the all the costumes were just paper, and I think all the, any, any wind, anything like that was just the animators bending mm -hmm. the paper. That also had its drawbacks, too, because it's like things rip. Things tear. I mean, all the costumes, basically each costume had to be replaced after each shot just because just natural wear and tear. And the sets, I mean, I know just watching anime, it's like if you breathe, it could change everything. <laughs> yeah, I remember the animators often saying that if it gets to be a certain level of wind, you have to just go with it. <laughs> if it gets really windy over the shot, there's no, there's no going back. <laughs> It's hard to settle down wind. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, is it, is it a good time to mention the wood floors, too? Oh. 
<laughs> in the studio, there were, there were wood floors, and depending on who was walking or where you were walking, it's like it would shake the different sets. And when you're working with you know tiny tiny pieces of paper that you know that would move when you breathe, it's like um, you 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 could tell Anthony, you probably suffered well, more. Than- yeah, usually you work. Uh, you, you get a space with concrete floor, and then there's no discussion about if the floor is going to move or not. <laughs> but we found we found a couple of spaces. We were on a time crunch. Um, you know, a couple. I don't know. We had some issues. One fell through. We couldn't get it. And then we found this really amazing space in uh, the Jean Talon neighborhood, and it was perfect. We loved it, but it had wood floors. And with stop motion, you want the floor to be solid because uh, it could affect the set or the camera. And, you know, you, as you're shooting frame by frame, you'll, if you don't stay in the same spot necessarily, you'll get a, you know, there'll be a, a shift. Not only that, but we were shooting um, in stereo. So there was that as well. So it made things interesting. There was one stage that I could not work on and we had to shut it down because it was just extra... Uh, Unstable, I guess. <laughs> There's extra flexibility on that one. It, it, I think it was stage nine, <laughs> yeah. I remember coming in on the weekend, sh- finishing a shot, because that was when no one was around, so I could finish it, and it wouldn't affect it. But anyway, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's kind of a minor thing, um, but kids out there, if you're shooting your stop motion, make sure you're, you know, go <laughs> shoot it out in the garage or something. <laughs> and, and on that note of, you know, how did we pull it off or whatever, um, you know, we decided also to um, to shoot on uh, at 12 poses per second. Camera moves were still on uh, ones at 24, but I, I think it gave it a nice, charming uh, look. And also, I think it actually is a little bit more forgiving for some of the kind of the way that we were doing the faces with their texture changes and whatnot. Mm. But so, so the the film is it is when it goes into the stop motion it goes to 12 poses per second. Mm-hmm. One thing that I love to bring up uh, with Alex, because I see this note here in your bio, which I think is amazing. And uh, before this, you did the book for the Babadook. Yes, it did. It's amazing. <laughs> like, Thanks. That's uh, that was such a we both saw that film together, <laughs> and it's weird because I'm I, even though very you know, big disparity between a film like The Little Prince and The <laughs> Babadook, but I can kind of see. Oh yeah, like there's a certain sensibility, you know, that kind of paper construction. And that really lovely sort of tactile quality, but it was very interesting. You know, you can juxtapose one against the other and see one used for such a charismatic effect, and then another like to scare the shit out of you, basically. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Mark saw the Babadook and said, "I got to get that guy for the little." <laughs> <laughs> well, what was nice is that both you know um, working working with Jen Jennifer Kent, like she she used also had a very clear vision for like what what the book needed to feel like in terms of the storytelling for the, for the, for the movie. So, and then she kind of let me, let me find it, which is like a crazy privilege to have. Uh, and I'm lucky to have two projects where it's like the directors are like, yeah, go, go find it, go find the look. Here's the information. And, um, and I feel like I, I respond really well in terms of like when, when you're, when you're trying to, in the discovery process, it's like a emotional information. It's like the subconscious stuff the finding the um feelings of things in the design mm. i don't know if that makes sense I, I definitely got a sense of that with um with both actually 
Like you, there was definitely something evocative. Because I feel like for me, that's that's the success of a design. If it's like, if it looks like there's a lot of great, beautiful, really clever designs out there and designers, it, and I'm I don't think I'm that guy. I'm not like really shiny and and sharp and slick, but I can make, or at least I, I aim to sort of make things that um that kind of resonate on a deeper emotional level. At least, at least t- you know they kind of touch your heart. If they could touch your heart in in a terrifying or <laughs> or or completely sweet way, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's tenderness. It's design tenderness. <laughs> Anthony, uh, of course, as you've indicated, pretty stellar filmography as well, uh, and you, you've been working for quite a long time now. I guess it goes back to. Nightmare and maybe just a bit before was Nightmare the first sort of major one? Yeah, Nightmare was the first feature film. Before that, I worked on with some clay animation um, on Gumby back in 1987. That was my first job. And then during that job, I met Henry Selick and worked with him on some MTV spots. And then uh, just, you know, a couple of cutout spots, uh, Pillsbury Doughboy. And then Nightmare happened and been doing a lot of feature films, James and the Giant Peach. I did some CG at Pixar for a couple of years, uh, but I really wanted to get back to stop motion, so I continued on with that. Uh, Monkey Bone with Henry, Corpse Bride in London, Coraline, Paranorman. But after Coraline is when I met Jamie, and uh, I really, I told him I really liked his uh, work and I wanted to work with him. So one day he gave me a call and we ended up working together. And I met Alex, and it was on United States of Terra. And then he worked on a few more spots after that, and, uh, and eventually uh, the Rifle Spiral video for the Shins. And I guess that's what piqued Mark's interest in uh, having us work mm-hmm. on the prints. I think Jamie has this story. Was it the, um, what did you guys mean, Annecy or something? Oh, well, it's kind of an odd story, really. Mark first told me about Little Prince. He wasn't thinking about me working on it at all. We just happened to run into each other at a CTN conference in Burbank, and we were both in line to see uh, Mobius speak, who has since passed away, but the great illustrator Mobius. And Mark was really excited, and he was telling me about how he might take this job to direct this movie, Little Prince, and he was working on different ways of working out the story. He was actually pitching story stuff to me. And he's like, you know, Little Prince, it's like he's kind of like this kid that lives on an asteroid, but then he comes down and and he sees this guy in the desert, and, and the way that Mark had described to me, I'd never heard of the story before, is I imagine it's like alien living on an asteroid, you know, and then coming down and visiting this guy in a plane. I imagine like a little gray guy or something. It, he said it to me so quickly. I had this really weird vision of what the Little Prince story was. And it wasn't until we did the Rifle Spiral video that he had already been thinking about stop motion, but he said, okay, I think these guys, let's see if we can get this team together you know so yeah that was the and I, I had done some concept art for him when he was pitching but the fact that it came back around after the rifle spiral thing was was very nice mm. another thing we saw the film uh, on friday when it came out on netflix here and uh, we were sort of trying to think of like the things that kind of felt evocative of and one that did come up was james and the giant peach and sort of coincidentally they're doing a season here uh, at our local like art house theater, like a Roald Dahl adaptation season. So they showed the old Henry Selick, James and the Giant Peach, and uh, of course the credits roll, and then there's your name. Like, oh, that's the guy we're talking to tomorrow. 
<laughs> and uh, I was just sort of wondering because I, I, it's not like immediately like the same design style, but there was something about the the certain illustrative quality, I suppose, about the way the characters were constructed that this film sort of reminded us of a bit. Well, I I'll just chime in and say there's I think there's two things going on, um, and I'm sure Alex has a perspective on this, and Anthony who actually worked on that film, but um, I think there's two things. One is that those designs were done by an illustrator who's a little bit outside of the animation norm. So you got someone who's used to doing flat art, interp- and then that was interpreted into sculptures. And I think that's part of it. I think the other part is that we did, it is a similar process in that we had replacement, a limited face sets that were replacement, and it's stop motion, um, and it's exterior. So I think there's, but we didn't look to it. But uh, Anthony, Alex, maybe you guys want to also chime in on what you think makes it similar? Well, I have a poster on my wall right here, actually, Lane's uh, illustrated poster. And uh, I mean, I can see what some people are saying, but I, I don't, I mean, there's some similarities with, I guess, the Little Prince and James, maybe. But, uh, you know, he, they were mostly uh, replacement, uh, hand sculpted replacement faces on the film. James had a, actually, a mechanical face like a foam latex face and oh, we, I didn't yeah we position the mouth um but it was very simple i mean compared to what they do now at leica on some of these you know with the the replacement faces and, and the huge library of printed faces that they have some mechanical faces as well uh, they were pretty simple on james and giant peach i'm trying to think because i don't really remember the james and giant peach very well I do remember loving it when I saw it. I haven't seen it in many years. But if you're, if there's anything that's sort of, you know, Jamie mentioned like the, the, the fact that the guy who designed it, um, he's an illustrator, and um, there, there's like a look that happens a lot. There's like um, it's like a move towards towards the middle when when it's um, when designs sort of get interpreted into sculpts. And I mean, may, may, oh, I wonder if it's like the the whole the those blank, those whole eyes, those dark eyes, mm. those circular eyes, you know, yeah. and the big head. But uh, we fought against the big head, and we we won in for in a measure <laughs> in the little prince. There, there was actually there was a heated debate for weeks about the the head size and the strength of neck muscles and the collapse of <laughs> vertebrae. <laughs> we we're trying. And the size of eyes compared to a skull, and just how much water they would retain. Yeah, I think <laughs> one great lesson I learned, you know, over the years um, working working with Jamie, who's, who's really been a mentor in terms of um, animation and artistic approaches to things in general, is that with a character, especially in, in filmmaking, sometimes less is more. The Saint Exupery drawings were so simple. It's like to keep that design element consistent in terms of like the heavy philosophical stuff <laughs> and uh and and it, you know emotional uh, content of of the film uh, of the different sequences that, that we were that we had to do i wanted to keep it neutral like that was that was really my goal and uh and jamie always said it's like if you're looking at a a face like a neutral expression you, you engage the audience to have to project their own emotional state so it's like you by engaging the audience you're letting them do some of the creative work, you know? And it's really important, I think, in terms of, like, how people respond to a character, to a scene. It's like, if you're not, if you're not giving them much, it's like they'll, they'll put their own things 
opposite character. I wanted to keep like a really limited set of expressions for exactly that reason. Mm. There was no giant smile. Like I, I would actually hide the smile from the animators sometimes, depending on the scene. The the smile. Definitely kit. a couple occasions where we're watching dailies, but who put the big smile? <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about existential crisis here. He's not smiling. <laughs> I also think if we're going to talk about stop motion, we have to give a shout out to Evan Derushi, who yeah. is a director animator and very technically savvy. And we, when we were in a pinch, we hired him to just go upstairs, literally upstairs from where we were, and set up shop with his own camera team and just focus in on a couple of the sequences where he could really just uh, knock out um, a couple key parts of the film and that really worked to our advantage because we just had too much on our plates and we were, I personally felt very scattered between all the different things we were trying to get done and he did a great job and he ended up doing a lot of the splitting a lot of the little print stuff with Anthony right I mean yeah he did uh well that's whole snake sequence um yeah and the and well, let's see what else did he work on and the uh Conceited Man sequence. He did some reverse shots of the, of, you know, um, the prince. Little prince. Yeah. And the king too, I believe. Yeah, the reverse the shots. Reverse. Yeah. He also ended up. Um, we had a weird thing where, when we were starting, we shot some of the. We were kind of rushing, and we shot the intro to the Little Prince the first time he appears. Just three shots, and um, it's like a it's like a wide and two close ups. And we just were never happy with them. And Mark was very supportive, and he let us reshoot them when we were done. So Evan came in and animated uh, the Little Prince for the what ended up being the opening three shots of the Little Prince when he's standing there on the dune. I mean, we can sit here and wax on about the creativity involved. You'd be surprised at how much of our lives was taken up with just sort of the like the shell game of of just you know equipment and animators and puppets and just just the logistics on a daily yeah. basis of what sets were ready to shoot and what was ready to light it just you'd be amazed at how much that would eat up our energy i don't know if anybody wants to well, we had to create the studio from scratch it was literally an empty space that we found to get out of the shoe store so a lot of that, we had to acquire everything that we needed as we went. So as the production grew, then that would be part of it, too. There wasn't a, a studio already set up that, that was supporting the, uh, the shooting. It was built as we went. When I, when I think back to the logistics, it's like I'm, I really love designing things, but I spent so much time engineering things which I'm really not good at but I like doing it a lot because there's a greater sense of accomplishment but I think in terms of like having to build the space having to come up the space I mean we, we probably moved the the overall layout of the studio once every month or two yeah we would rearrange you know, we, we every- just rearrange you know play play musical chairs with all the the different spots because because the production was changed we need, need different things and there's different requirements for the different departments and we get more people 
It yeah. was a happy day when the uh, when they opened up the bathrooms. <laughs> yes, we had we yeah that was, that was a, we had like these bit because they like installed new bathrooms while we were there, but they didn't they didn't put stalls in. So you just walk in and there's like two unbarricaded toilets in there. So you you know you'd be sitting there and you looking over there, and there's a lonely toilet next to you, unused. <laughs> so eventually, eventually we we genderized them and they put stalls in. Yeah, that's gonna make it. That's gonna make it to the DVD right that's there. <laughs> So thank you so much to the team behind the Little Prince stop-motion sequences for coming together. Also to Laura Beth Cowley for helping out with the interview there. And you can learn more about all of their work at their respective websites, anthonyscott.net, corinnemerrill.com, alexanderyouhas.com, and jamescaleary.com. And Mark Osborne's The Little Prince is available now to watch on Netflix, and you can check out thelittleprince.com which covers the entire phenomenon the book started, including the new film. And so that's it for another Squiggly podcast. Before we go, I have an update. You may recall a few episodes ago, I mentioned the very first Squiggly tie-in book would be coming out late September or early October. And that's no longer the case, as it's already out. Independent animation, developing, producing, and distributing your animated films is available now from crcpress.com with various international retailers to follow, featuring contributions and insight from the cream of the independent animation crop. And if you're out there who have an inkling to make your own film, or already have, and are looking for that fresh approach for your next one, or if you're just a fan of indie animation from a cultural perspective, this book was made for all of you. Also, for those of you who live in or near the beautiful city of Montreal, you might want to swing by the Anime's International Animation Festival, which takes place at the Montreal Museum of Fine Art. My film Clean and Throw will play as part of their 3pm screening Human Nature on Friday, August 19th, alongside some great work, including that of recent podcast guest Joe Brum. So visit animesfestival.com for all the info on that. I've been Ben Mitchell. Follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve Henderson is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And when you smush us together, we're at Squiggly. And of course, visit the website itself, squiggly.com, for all the usual animation goodness we spoil you with. So until the next podcast, happy animating. We will kill the father <laughs> while his son watches in terror. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>